All right, well, good morning. Good morning. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers that are here this morning. Let me just say this while the, uh, the kids are heading out. A great thank you. VBS takes an enormous army of volunteers and people who just give of their time all week long to be with the kids and create. We, we, I mean, the decorations in here were like first class. I mean, you thought you were in another world. Uh, they just did a great job. So thank you to all you guys who do that for us every year and serve faithfully for a whole week with our children. It leaves an impact on their lives. It really does. And so thank you. Um, all right, I'm going to do something before I jump into my message here. Your father not your heavenly father, your personal father, woke up this morning probably aware that it was Father's Day, right? And so your day got started and boom, you were getting your kids out the door and you were running here and perhaps you are here right now and you have not sent a text message or anything to your father yet. So this is what we're gonna do right now. You're gonna take your phone out right now. And unless your father is too old to have a cell phone, which a few of you will have that problem, uh, or you can't text him for obvious reasons that he's no longer with you. But if you can contact your father right now and you have not sent a text to him yet, just to say, hey, I'm thinking of you and happy Father's Day, Dad. Uh, do that right now. I want you, I'm serious. Take your phone out. This is one of the few times that I like your phone. The rest of the time I'm anti-phones, even though I have one, and send something to him, letting him know you want to wish him happy Father's Day. And, I, and I'm realizing, and if you stick with me in the message here, I'm realizing that for some of you, that might be an awkward thing to do. It might be a little bit of a difficult thing to do. But, there, you know, God is a remedy for those things as well. So, and, and don't get in a long conversation with him because I do want you to pay attention to the message. So don't go be going back and forth. Say, hey, Dad, don't get carried away. I'll be back with you later. Say, tell him something nice like that along the way. All right. Well, if you can open your Bibles to 1 Peter. Let me locate where we are here in our summer Bible jam. I don't have a little handout for me. So do we have a, a little sheet to locate our chapter of where we are in the summer Bible jam? This is like part four. And we are being introduced today to what we're calling the partial kingdom, and I'll explain what that partial element is, and there's your assignment for the week. And so last week, Evan took us through the promised kingdom, that God was promising something to us in the realm of his kingdom coming into our lives, and today we're going to talk about his partial establishment of that kingdom. Um, I don't know what you guys were like, you know, maybe, maybe you haven't explored the Bible a whole lot. Maybe you're here and, and the Bible's a new book to you and you're just starting to, to get some time to read it. Um, I remember my early encounters with reading the Bible, reading through Genesis and, and Exodus and, and then, you know, you got into Leviticus and I started feeling like, I, I think I've seen some of this before. And then you got into numbers and Deuteronomy and I kept reading stuff that I thought I'd already read you know I'm thinking is this a misprint they got like a misprint bible that it just keeps saying some of the same stuff over and over again I thought we'd already been through these command things and so the old testament was a pretty confusing book for me to try and read through and maybe that for you too 
Maybe you come to the Bible and, and you pick the Bible up and you, you know, let me read the safe stuff. Let me, let me read the Gospel of John, maybe a, a New Testament letter or something. And, and if I'm going to be brave and venture back in the Old Testament, maybe I'll just read like the Psalms. You know, so, or maybe Genesis, because I know that's in the beginning. Can't be confused about too much stuff there. But then we get into the rest of the storyline of Scripture, and it can get a little confusing. There's this bunch of names thrown at us. You know, we've got a, an Adam and an Abraham and a Moses and a David. And, you know, were these all guys hanging out together? I mean, did they know one another? Were they in the same time frame? They lived down the block from each other? It's like we don't know what to do with some of these guys. And then there's all kinds of stuff that we don't have familiarity with that's being thrown at us. They're, they're sacrificing all kinds of animals all over the place. There's blood everywhere in the Old Testament. What's up with that? There's these laws being given, and they seem to be a major deal, and, and God seems to be in a bad mood all the time. And then there's these guys come along, the prophets, well, who are these prophets? They, they, they kind of, they have this mystery about them. They're kind of like Jedi knights or something. And they roam about and they're in touch with some religion and they pull people back towards it in a strange way. And all this stuff gets served up to us and we're trying to figure out, okay, how do I, how do I make sense of this story? Well, what, I, what we want to do in going through the Bible jam with us here is introduce us to the Bible in such a way that we can actually enjoy reading it. We can actually understand what was God doing in these various locations and what's God trying to communicate back then and to me today as I read through this book. So uh, I'm going to unpack some things today. We're going we're to pull up and visit, again, Mount Sinai. We were there a few weeks ago in, in our study through Exodus. But we're going to pull up again and visit the law, the tabernacle, this strange thing that gets invented in the Old Testament. And the system of sacrifice, all these animals that are being, their blood is being shed and they're being killed. What's that got to do with anything that's going on in the Bible? How do we make sense of that? Now, remember, we're, we're studying a book alongside studying the Bible this summer. So this book is called God's Big Picture. I don't know if you guys started the message or not, but I see my green clock isn't moving. And you can go ahead and move my green clock so I'll know how long to take. Um, we're studying through God's big picture, and it's, it's a study of the storyline of the Bible. And so if I could just take three chapters to describe the storyline of the Bible, you'd have a piece of the storyline that starts with creation. I'm going to call that the way things were. God created a world, and it used to be a certain way. And then there's this next giant section of the Bible, right? This, this first section gets a little bitty piece. And then there's this giant section that most of the Bible is about. It's the world as things are today. And then there's one more chapter after that. It's the world as things will be one day, right? So if I understand those three pieces, it'll help me understand the Bible quite a bit, because you and I live in a world that's not like the world that was created, and we're going to live in a world that's not like the one we live in now. And if I get that, that, that might rescue me in a particular category. It might rescue me from assassinating God's character in some ways, because you and I live in the broken part of the story. 
Things don't go right. Stuff doesn't work. Relationships don't work. People die. There's diseases. There's suffering. There's hardship. And when we get around that, there's something in us that looks at God and says, God, what's up with that? Who, who are you and what are you like that you've created a world that's got so much pain in it, so much difficulty in it? Well, listen, I'm, I still might not be able to fully explain the sense of why a good God would allow for there to be difficulties in our existence. But if I back away and I see these three chapters, I have to now think about God this way. I have to incorporate the thought God did not create the world this way. And one day, God will not let it stay this way forever. He will put an end to this chapter and it will go on and it will be quite different than it is now. But right now, it's broken. Right now, there's a lot about our world that doesn't work right. And God's got answers for that. God's got a means of helping us deal with that. And uh, if you're doing life right now, you're being tested and challenged by the fact that life won't, doesn't seem to want to cooperate with you. It doesn't seem to want to do what you want it to do. People don't do what you want them to do. People hurt you, disappoint you. Stuff doesn't go right. Uh, I was just doing some air conditioner maintenance yesterday, and you know this, this screw was designed to go in that hole, and if you turn it, it's supposed to tighten. And I was reminded yesterday, I live in a fallen world. Something that simple, just, it just can't work that way, can it? And of course it didn't. Like most things just didn't work. That, and I had to remind myself, this was a good theological moment while I'm sitting outside sweating around the air conditioner to remind myself, Keith, you live in a broken world. So stuff is broken. That screw's not going back in that hole. And you just took it out of that hole just moments ago. Somehow it's not going back in. Um, all right, so... Today is Father's Day. How many of you guys know you live in a broken version of Father's Day? Fathers, your children may not respond to you the way you would like them to. Because you live in a broken version of Father's Day. And, and, and that's painful. And difficult and there's suffering that you experience. Children of all ages, young ones, adult children, you were raised by a father who was affected by the fallen world that he lives in. He was not a perfect father. He, you, you might sit here and amen me on that and say he was far from a perfect father. He was even a hurtful father. But when you incorporate God's story into your story, you get a sense of understanding that. Your father was born into a fallen, broken, sin-soaked world, and he was affected by that. Did you expect him not to be? Did you expect that you would get a perfect father? or a father not affected by the gravitational pull of sin, that he would somehow escape that. And he would be to you what you always longed for and what you wished he would always be to you. Well, listen, you and I can wish for that all we want, but remember, we're not in the world that God originally created, and we're not yet in the world that he is creating. For right now, we're in between. And that in between affects how we understand our lives and how we understand God. 
but God is doing something. That word partial, God is restoring something. So we're in this storyline where God created, sin came and corrupted, but God is restoring things along the way, and one day he will ultimately restore it all. And we're not even there yet. But God has partially restored things along the way. And so we enter this storyline in the Old Testament. We pull up to Mount Sinai, and we're going to experience this partial restoration that God has done to fix this broken world. But it's, it's a partial fix. All right? But I want you to start with me in the New Testament, 1 Peter, because <clears throat> I want to gather some ingredients, if you will. Before we go back and visit the Old Testament, Let's gather some ingredients here. So I'm going to call your attention to pay attention to a few particular words that are part of this partial restoration process. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All right, this is part of the storyline. Why does this matter? Why does being born again through a resurrected life, why does that have any kind of a good news effect for any of us? Because according to God's revealed story, something happened in the Garden of Eden that we learned about. Sin came in and we lost life. So man has entered in this condition of death. He's alive, but he's dead. He's got a sense of being alive, but he has lost his life connection to God. And so Jesus needed to come do something to fix that. And through his resurrection, he now has the power of life. Jesus has the power to bring life back to people who are dead. So this is, this is part of God's story. And it says in verse 4, We've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Oh, and by the way, it's kept in heaven for you. So there's a dimension of our salvation, this life that comes to us, that God comes right out and tells you and I in the here and now that you don't get all of it right now. You get some of it right now. You get a partial deposit of it right now, but there's a portion of your life from God that awaits you in heaven. There's an inheritance that's not for right now, it's for then. Right now, listen, I, you know, I mean, some of you guys have been attending the church for a while, and I don't really know theologically where you come from, but this would be a major faux pas and problem if you've been around prosperity teachings in your life. Because what prosperity teachings, faith teachings do is they, they close their eyes to the future dimensions of life and they act as though you can have everything right now. Well, what happens when your body gets sick? Well, rather than recognizing that there is a glorified body awaiting me on that day that will never have sickness in it, you preach to people that, well, you could be well if you just believe. If you just have faith and your body could be well. That's a prosperity idea that makes you think you can have heaven on earth. You cannot have heaven on earth. You can have heaven in heaven. That's how that works. <laughs> so this is, this, this, there's an inheritance. It's unperishable. It's undefiled. It's waiting in heaven for you. Now look in verse 10. Here's these Jedi guys roaming around, these prophets. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, 
They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So who were these prophets, these strange robed guys walking around the Old Testament, eating weird stuff, living out on the edge of society and searching for something? Who were they? Well, they were searching for an awareness of this storyline, this salvation that was going to come in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Look in verse 13. Therefore, right, that's a... That calls our attention. This stuff exists. Therefore, your life is a certain way. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's a partial now and a more full revelation later. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. All right, so God has done something, and there's a storyline that gets served up to God's people. And this big therefore, it comes flying into the face of our lives, and we're going to visit that it did the same thing to the Old Testament people. God has done something in his storyline. Therefore, you be obedient and live holy lives. Because the one who called you, he is holy. You be holy because he is holy. Now, now what's happening right here? Well, you know, the first installment in this series was an understanding that there's a pattern to the kingdom of God. And this pattern or this purpose of God was that you and I are created for a reason. My life exists for a reason. God designed me for a reason, and that reason was to express his life, to let his life be imaged through me. We exist in order for the image of God to be seen. So when the Bible says, be holy as God is holy, it's just saying in a different way, be like God, image God. Let your life be an image of God's life. So this assignment comes to each one of us. Be obedient to God and conduct your lives in a manner that shows off the holiness of God. All right, so we're still collecting ingredients here. Look in verse 22. At some point, this starts looking like human activity, human beliefs and behavior. It's not just a weird, be holy for God is holy. It actually means do something and live a certain way. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from the heart. So now we're, now we're called to live a certain way towards each other. And that love in verse one of chapter two takes on certain characteristics. He said, so if you're gonna love each other, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Right, so this is now, it's human behavior. Be holy for God is holy. Love one another and put away these activities. So all of a sudden holiness has some shape to it. It has a reality to it in God's storyline here. And one more verse from 1 Peter Actually, two more. Verse four, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Hang on to that. A spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All right, so do you see all these vocabulary words we're getting introduced to here? You've got some unique things about relating to God that are in these passages. And then verse 9 of chapter 2, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, or that you might image him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then another, this is another behavior modification element, because I want us to see, what do you do with all the Bible telling you to behave a certain way? What do you do with it? Why is it there? Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. All right, so listen, I know religion is always balled up with human behavior and how you're supposed to behave. What are you supposed to do? What are you not supposed to do? And next thing you know, we're, we're, we're thinking that Christianity or religion is just a set of rules that you keep or don't keep. All right, listen, I can't rescue all of us from wherever those ideas came from and how they get engendered inside of us. But when I read the Bible, I find out that God actually does come on the scene and say, every one of you exists for a purpose. And your purpose is to image me, me who, who is holy. I am holy. And so if you're going to image me, you're going to be holy. And so that holiness looks a certain way. It looks like you're treating each other a certain way. It looks like you're loving each other a certain way. It doesn't look like malice and envy and jealousy and pride. It doesn't look, put those things away. Because when you put that on, you stop looking like me. You stop imaging me. Your life doesn't look, smell, sound, anything like me in that moment. So you stop fulfilling the purpose that I created you. So our human behavior matters, but, but why does it matter to you? And what do you do with it? Because people do some weird stuff with commands and laws and how we're supposed to behave and why we're supposed to behave a certain way. All right, so the, here's our ingredients. Let me see our, our ingredient list of stuff we've collected we're going to be born again from Peter's helping us with this. We've got this resurrection from the dead. We've got behavior that's going to look like it's love for one another. There's a particular conduct among the nations that Peter talks about. Behave in public a certain way. Look a certain way for a reason. Be holy. Obey. There's a salvation that's being revealed here. It's being revealed in part now. It's going to be revealed fully later. All right, so this is the thinking in this storyline. And that storyline thinking doesn't change, whether you're standing in the New Testament or whether you're standing in the Old Testament. All right, so if we jump from 1 Peter back to Leviticus, everybody's favorite book of the Bible. You know where that is? Leviticus chapter 19. And remember with me, when you're reading the Bible, you got you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. All right, towards the end of Exodus, the people of God pull up to Mount Sinai and they park there for a good while. And God reveals a bunch of things to them in that moment. So he's going to reveal something in Exodus, but the next book after Exodus is Leviticus. 
it's God explaining some things to his people in terms of how they live. So in this exchange between Exodus and Leviticus, we get the law, we get something called the tabernacle, and we get all kinds of instructions on how to sacrifice a whole lot of animals. Right? So let's just get a, a quick summary of that from chapter 19. Exodus, Leviticus, uh, I'm sorry, Leviticus 19, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Does this sound like First Peter? All right, so apparently the storyline is not going to change a whole lot. There is this constant purpose. And, and, you know, I can't say this more emphatically because every one of us sits in this room this morning, having lived life this past week, trying to shop for a reason that our lives exist. And usually the, the, there's the, the incredibly grand mistake that we make. We start with us and we end with us. And we try to figure out why does my life exist? And the reason must have to do with something unique about me. So let me get about discovering something unique about me. What kind of talent do I have? What kind of interests do I have? How can I be successful at something? What did I want to be when I was growing up? And these are the things that we shop for to define why we exist. But the Bible says God created us, so the creator defines why we exist. And he comes along and says, you exist in order to be an image of me. Now, you're going to do that uniquely. Men will do it differently than women. Young and old will do it different. Talented in different ways, you'll do it differently. But you exist for this purpose. And in some ways, can I just express wonderfully great news for you? You can, shop, you can stop shopping for why you exist. You can leave this building today knowing, why do I exist? You exist in order to be an image bearer of God. And that God stands in front of his congregation in Leviticus and today, and he says, you be holy, for I am holy. So much of what we're going to talk about today is about God's holy life being observable. And he, he immediately moves into activity, right? So you be holy because I'm holy. Verse 3, <clears throat> every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. Is he changing subjects here? Is, he, is, is God having a moment where, oh, oh, there he goes again. Talking about one thing, then he's talking about something else. He's kind of losing it. You, know, you be holy for I am holy. And immediately we're into the commands. So I wonder if the commands, the laws that are given, I wonder if they have anything to do with the image of God. What do you think? Because, you know, I mean, if, you, if you're, you've been taught poorly, and most of us have been taught poorly at some point, and I'm probably I've been doing some of that poor teaching to you. Um, if you've been taught poorly, you, you've been taught to believe that the law is sort of this antagonistic, not really a good thing, some weak attempt at people trying to get their own salvation before God. So it's got a lot of negative, bad press. But God says, you be holy like me because that's why you exist, right? To image me. And, and, and here's what holiness is going to look like in human form. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. You shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. Does this sound like the commands? Jump over into verse 11. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. 
You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slander among your people and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Well, this is just a commentary on the commandments, isn't it? They pull up at Mount Sinai, they get commandments written in stone, they get delivered. Here in Leviticus, a commentary is being given, but what it's attached to is you shall be holy for I am holy. So part of expressing the image of God looks like honoring your mother and your father. It looks like not having graven images that you turn to as idols to be a resource to you rather than God. It looks like you're not stealing from one another and mistreating one another. It looks like, as a summary verse in verse 18, it looks like you would love your neighbor as yourself. And isn't that what Jesus summed up the law with? Right? Jesus summed the whole law up in two great commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So there's the great commands of God, which, by the way, how, how revolutionary is this? This is upside down. Right? Let's be honest with the way in which we live our lives today. This is upside down. Because if we're, if we're here today and we're recovering in life, and every, all of us are recovering, aren't we? This is a big recovery meeting. We're recovering. Somebody's done us wrong. Somebody didn't show up. Somebody neglected us. Something didn't go our way. We were hurt. And so, so now we're trying to go back in time and figure out how was I hurt? Why was I hurt? And how do I need to respond? And who needs to do something right? You know, the Bible doesn't ignore any of that, but it, but it thrusts upon us two commands to obey without excuse. Love God with everything you got and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, how different would our lives be if those really were the two priorities of our lives? Rather than having a mindset that's trying to figure out how I can get other people to love me and why don't they love me, by the way, and what's wrong with them that they don't love me, and, and where, where's the complaint desk so that I can complain about the way in which people are not loving me, especially in the church, by the way. The church must be full of people who love me. You know, and I came to church and no one told me hello. I went to a small group and the leader didn't call me. Right, we've got a whole list of things that say I'm very much in touch with. Why isn't the world loving me? Why isn't the world serving me? Why aren't the people in my life serving me? Why didn't my dad serve me and love me the way I wanted to be loved? Why didn't people treat me the way? And then what we do is if, if you're not going to treat me the right way, well, then I'm not going to treat you the right way. 
You know, this bearing a grudge thing that we're actually commanded not to bear grudges. Well, you know, I'm reading from Leviticus, though, right? This, this stuff doesn't matter for Christians, right? It's the Old Testament. It's a bunch of list of rules and laws. This question, does bearing a grudge somehow distort the image of God? Does it interfere with God's holiness and make it not seem? It, it's, a, it's a terrible age in which to live that has subtly created this feel for life. If you'll deposit your nickels in me appropriately, I will respond to you appropriately. If you will deposit your affirmation in me, then I will like you. If you will support me, I will like you. If you are for me the way I'd like for you to be for me, then I will respond to you favorably. But if we get at odds, or if you fail, or you don't show up at my doorstep and be the father you're supposed to be, the mother you're supposed to be, the friend you're supposed to be, the church person you're supposed to be, I feel somehow okay to back away from you and not fulfill any sense of obligation I have to you because, I mean, look at what you did. Do you see how upside down this is? The Bible doesn't come along and say anything about what somebody else did. It looks at you and says, listen, I understand, uh, you know, God, I, I, I wrote Genesis chapter 3. I understand the world is a mess. I understand all these people behind me. They're a mess. But you... You love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you turn around and love them just like you love yourself. But God, do you understand what they're doing to me? Do you understand how difficult my child is or my parent is or my spouse is? Do you understand that that's not in this command? This command calls on you and me to love God wholeheartedly, whether I fully understand him or not, whether I like his agenda, whether he's serving my purpose, whether he's gotten around fast enough to meet my needs. I'm called to love him wholeheartedly, and I'm commanded to love others. Do you know how much this would change our world if we actually lived this and stopped waiting for other people to get it together toward us before we decide what action we'll take? What if we just took action? What if we just love people no matter what they were going to do to us? whether they're going to be for us, against us, slander us, stab us in the back. What if we chose to love like God loves to bear his image? Right? You do realize this, this has realities to it. Right? There's, there's going to be a demonstration of this in human form where the Son of God sits with nails through his wrists on a cross, being mocked and made fun of and spit at and ridiculed and treated like a fool. And he's going to gaze up into heaven and say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's what the image of God looks like. And then God says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So, so what's up with the law? Why the law? Why this, this call to holiness? Because these are God's people that belong to him who are being told to do these things. So, so get out of our heads that somewhere in the Old Testament there was ever installed this idea, this bad idea that needs to be tossed to the curb, that God created this law practice, this works way of approaching him. And that's what the law is about. It's about human beings trying to perform their way into a relationship with God. And they do that by trying to keep the commands. No, 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 no. 
This audience in Leviticus chapter 19, these people are the people that God's already made his people. They're already his. And he turns to them and he says, obey my commands. And he does the same thing in the New Testament. When Jesus proclaimed the gospel was to be preached in all the world and we were to go and make disciples, so they are disciples. They're followers of Christ. Now take those followers of Christ who belong to him and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Why? If we're already saved, if we already belong to God, why all these rules? Why all this law? Well, might it be that it has to do with the image of God and his holiness being portrayed? Might it be that God wants to dwell among his people and this sort of, this sort of activity matters to him? Have you ever stopped to think whether you know, your little human activity matters to God? Your attitude whether it's holding a grudge or putting before you some movie or some song that celebrates sin and corruption and the brokenness of this world. And it's, it's a party about it. It's a, it's a joyful song of celebration about some horrific activity that grieves God. Do you ever think that that matters to God? You ever think the way we do human relationships matters to God? I mean, I know we live in a world today that seems to be saying, you know, the kind of God who's supposedly out there, he's kind of okay with any of this stuff. You just need to get in touch with the fact that God is tolerant and, and he doesn't mind these things. Okay, I, that's not the God in the Bible. The God in the Bible actually is a certain way. What if he is a certain way? Can, can we just be okay with that? Can I be okay with a God being a certain way that if he walks into this room, he's good with some stuff and he's not good with other stuff and I don't get to tell him what to be good with? Can I kind of just get around that and be okay with that? Because if he is a certain way, well, what if he's going to respond to you and I doing things that are offensive to him? And, you know, in spite of the fact that modern man's trying to give God some advice and just tell him, hey, God, lighten up. Get over it already. We're just, you know, hey, don't be so old-fashioned, God. We're doing some things different. Certainly you get that. Certainly you're okay with that. Okay, what if, just hypothetically, what if he's not okay with that? What if he's like you? You okay with everything? You okay with people just showing up in your life and having their own agenda, doing it their own way and saying, hey, Keith, just get used to it. I'm different, okay? Just deal with it. I'm not all right with that, but I'm not even God. God's not all right, right? You guys do remember this storyline. Genesis chapter three introduces us not just to the fall and sin coming on the scene, <clears throat> but it introduces us to God's response to sin. Do you remember what God's response to sin was? Every sin that gets highlighted in the beginning of Genesis gets met with a response by God of judgment. God responds to Adam and Eve in judgment. God responds to Cain in judgment. God responds to the evil of the world with the judgment of the flood. 
It's, it's in God. It, I, 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 I hate to lower this illustration, but I, I don't know how to get us to get out of the idea that God can just learn to be okay with stuff. What if he cannot and will not learn to be okay with stuff? What if God's response of judgment is like a gag reflex in God? When sin comes to him, right, certain things come to you, you know, I won't describe that. I don't want anybody throwing up in here. But, you know, there's certain stuff that just kind of come. You know, when you were a kid in, in fifth grade, I'm scarred by this, in fifth grade, and, you know, that kid threw up in the classroom and this chain reaction went around the room. It's like everybody was healthy until about 30 seconds ago, and now everybody's just heaving, and next thing you know, your gag response is kicking in, right? Nobody sits in the room and go, hmm. How do I want to respond to this? That sound of splashing on the floor. Uh, uh, let me think. I guess I could either ignore it or I could throw up too. You know, there's no response like that. It's like it just happens and something inside of you goes, me too. You know? uh, well, there's something in God that when sin occurs, it's not like he sits around and goes, uh, how do I feel about sin today? He responds in judgment. What if every sin gets judged? Because that's the nature of God. Because he notices every sin. Right, look at this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 23. It says, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp, to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you, right? God's for his people. Therefore, your camp must be holy. Why should your camp be holy? Because God is in your midst. That's why it should be holy. So that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. That's what God did to Adam and Eve. That's what God did to Cain. That's what God did to every act of judgment is God seeing something indecent to him. That apparently, in spite of what people in the world might be telling you, there are some things out there that God says are indecent. When you do that, that's indecent to me. Well, why be holy? See, if you, if you mess up the law and you mess up your understanding of the commands, you'll toss it out because what? You're a Christian under grace, Right? You're a Christian who relates to God, not because you've been good enough to relate to God. You just relate to God because of the grace of God that's come to you. And that's true. But why is it that we jettison everything else that has to do with the holiness of God? God says, hey, you people in the Old Testament, you are my people, but I'm going to be among you and that's going to be a problem. And if I'm going to be among you, then you're going to need to be holy the way I'm holy. And you're going to need to live the way I am. And I don't want to see anything indecent going on among you. That's God. Now, if I'm still in Leviticus 19, check this out. Verse 5, right in the midst of all this behavior and adjustments and imaging God, he says, verse 5, when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. All right, so we've got law. Now we've got sacrifices 
Now, let me introduce us to why this sacrifice idea exists. This sacrifice idea gets spelled out once we get the tabernacle delivered over to us. Right? Do you guys know what the tabernacle is? This is, this is really a, a rather awesome thing God does. You turn back just to Exodus chapter 25 for a second. Exodus 25, God has brought his people out of Egypt. He's brought them to Mount Sinai. He's giving them his law. And then he says this to them, chapter 25. All in the same meeting here, right? They're all just hanging out at the foot of the mountain. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary. That's where we get the word tabernacle that I may dwell in their midst. All right, if you've been following this storyline, this is a restoration of something that was lost. God hasn't, quote, dwelled in their midst since Adam. God is taking a giant step right here in partially restoring what Adam lost in the Garden of Eden. God is restoring his life, his presence to his people. So God brings his people to Mount Sinai so that he may dwell among them. But this dwelling is going to be partial, right? This is the image of the tabernacle. And there's all kinds of carefulness here. There's all kinds of layers of activity here. There's all kinds of particulars. That's why Leviticus sometimes is not an attractive book to read. Because it's filled with all kinds of details on, on how we're supposed to approach. But the tabernacle has got all kinds of issues with it. So this is what it would have looked like for the nation of Israel. All around, in all directions, around this tabernacle were the dwelling places of the various tribes of Israel. So they're traveling through the wilderness and they would set themselves up in neighborhoods. So they're living in tents, but at the centerpiece of this nation is this tabernacle, this place, that, and that smoke that's coming out of the top of the tent there is the presence of God among his people. So there was a cloud by day and there was fire by night. God made himself manifest there. The God that everybody knows is out there showed up at this address uniquely. And that's how God wants to be in every person's life. He just doesn't want to be the God who's on the moon too. He wants to be the God who's intimately manifest to each one of us. And this was a partial step in that direction. But do you notice that there's a gate around this place? A seven and a half foot curtain went all around this place. And so you could not casually come near to God. You couldn't just walk in and out and, hey, God, what's up? Big daddy, good to see you, man. You keeping it cool? Beautiful. See you next week. Uh, that didn't happen, right? There was this established sense of reverence. There was a sense of mystery that on the other side of that seven and a half foot curtain, things were going on there that were holy. And so within that, you go within that, 
where the priests serve. So there's a special group of people that they have special permission to get around this God that not everybody has that kind of permission, but this priesthood, remember that from 1 Peter? This priesthood was being given special permission to relate to God. So that's inside the big curtain. There's a big altar there where animals are being sacrificed and burned. There's a labor there for the priests to clean themselves before they go into another tent called the tent of meeting. And there's another veil across the front of that. And not everybody can go in there. And it's a little different in there. And then you go inside there, and there's another curtain. And behind that curtain, God manifests his presence in a cloud and in fire. And so what is God saying? Because, you know, they didn't invent this tabernacle. Matter of fact, God takes Moses up into heaven and shows him what to build, sends him back down to earth, so to speak, and says, hey, build what you just saw. So there is this sense that this God who exists cannot be approached casually. He cannot. So what's up with all these sacrifices? Well, in order for sinful man to get around a holy God, he's going to have to deal with his sinfulness. So whenever sins were committed, they had to come to this tabernacle. They had to bring with them a living offering. There were some other offerings that they could bring if they couldn't afford that. And bring it to the priest. And the priest was going to take the life of that little creature, little innocent creature, was going to have its life taken in order for God's gag reflex to get satisfied. Sin was occurring and God was responding to sin. But this is a really awesome thing that God does. And this may look like, man, that's a lot of details. What a pain. Who's got time for all this? Listen, if God's down the list of priorities, that's exactly what this feels like. But what if God says, I want to dwell among you, but there's this giant problem. It's your sin. It's a giant problem. Does that make you feel bad? I'm serious. I, mean, I say things to people like that, and it's kind of like, oh, this, this, is why I, this is why I hate coming to this church, man. <laughs> All right, listen, if you can't be made to feel bad by that, you can't enjoy the next thing I'm about to say. Because me telling you that you're not all that bad makes this look like, well, what the heck was all this about? Ain't nobody really all that bad. I mean, come on, God, just get over it. Nobody's really that bad. Oh, really? Well, then why does the God of the universe go through all this? So he creates this system, but this is what God created. He said, I want to be among you. I want to be among you. I want to dwell in the midst of your people. I want to return what Adam lost, and I want to be intimately connected with my people. But there's this problem. You guys sin. And my reaction to sin is to bring judgment and so if I'm going to hang out with you, I'm going to be spilling judgment all over you, left and right. That's who I am. I am holy. I am that way. So here's what you do. You set this tabernacle system up so that when you sin, I can direct my judgment to these animals. Partially so that you'll understand one day I'm going to direct it to my son who will come in the form of a man. And he will take all of my judgment and you will be spared this judgment. And this is what God installs so that he could be among his people. So, so what, is this, what does this tell you about God? Right? It, it ought to tell you he wants to be with you. 
this God with all these details and all of the priests have got to go through and they've got to wash a certain way and wear certain garments and set this whole thing up a certain way and sacrifice particular animals. Why all that? Because this God is particular. He is a particular way. And in his love, he has created a means of dealing with what sin has created in our lives. To me, that's amazing love from God. What a longing from a God who wants to be among us. But, but listen carefully. Don't, don't get the wrong idea about why this stuff exists. Right? You, you don't obey God in order to sort of self-pay for the stuff that you've done wrong. You realize once you sin, the only payment that you can render for that sin is death. That's it. And since you're already dead, there's just going to be a second death, and then that's going to be the one that happens before the judgment seat of God. So you can't like, oh, I did this one bad thing. It wasn't a really bad thing. It was like a minor bad thing. So I think I need to do like four good things to kind of work that out. And if I did a really, really bad thing, I've got to do like some really, really good things, maybe 10 of those to work out. Really, that's in the Bible somewhere? You, you hear this, Leviticus 6, right? Same book of Leviticus, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor, right? So he just said, don't do that. Don't lie to each other. Don't steal from each other. Don't defraud one another. But by the way, I know you're going to do it anyway. And if you do, here's what you do. If he's oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all these things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the, the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. So you did something wrong to somebody else, now take care of it. Go back and fix it. That doesn't forgive you, though. That's just the right thing to do. And if you're going to image God, you're going to go do the right thing. Verse 6, And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. So you do recognize this. You rip somebody off, held something back, lied to them about it, and then you realize, I've done the wrong thing. So you take and you pay them back. You acknowledge it to them. You actually pay them a little bonus because you've kind of put them in a bad spot. Good. You do understand, though, you're still not forgiven before God. Because you can't fix sin by doing something good. Now, once you've done that, now you're going to take an innocent animal and you're going to go to the priest in this system here. And that animal is going to pay the price for your sin. And he's, his life is going to be ransomed and taken. And blood is going to be shed, smeared on the altar. And now, now your sin has been covered over and atoned for. And you and God are okay. And he will not direct his judgment toward you. That's what all this is about. 
You shall be holy for I am holy. And the day that you're not holy, the day that you fall short of being holy, an innocent one is going to have to take your place in order for you to be forgiven. Listen, there's never a day in the world of the Bible's religion that you can ever work out what you've done wrong. Only a perfect, unblemished one who was innocent can work out what you've done wrong. And that's none of us, is it? Now, can you get this right? God installs this system here at the same time he installs the law. Now, why would God install a system of sacrifice to make man right with God if our works of keeping the law could make us right with God? Can you explain that to me? If what was happening at Mount Sinai is God was giving the Ten Commandments so that you could use them like a ladder to climb on to get to God, well, then all that this book would say is keep at it, try harder. If you fall off the ladder, get up, try again, try, try, try. That's all it would say. It wouldn't say something like, hey, you know what? Here's my commands. And by the way, I know you're not going to keep these. And in order for you to stay in relationship with me, because remember, I want to dwell among you. I'm going to install this whole system where innocent animals lose their lives for the guilty so that we can stay right. Now, you guys see that this is a, this is a partial remedy. Because the Bible is going to come out and say, listen, innocent Animals have been dying for guilty men, but the problem is these are animals and these are human beings and they don't have the same value. So the only way that this is really going to work is if a human being comes and he is the sacrifice and pays the penalty for other human beings. And that will happen one day. And that person will be Jesus Christ who will come and he will pay for you. Listen, this is that partial element. This is a partial installment here. But let me just highlight this, because, you know, what, what does this stuff mean for us? What does this mean for you and for me? Well, we said a few weeks ago, here's our biggest problem. When sin comes into the world, our biggest problem becomes our condition of death and God's pending response of judgment. That's the biggest problem you got. You don't, have, you don't have a bigger financial problem. You ain't got a bigger health problem. You don't have a bigger relational problem. The biggest problem you and I have in our lives is this condition called death and the coming judgment of God against man's sin. That's our great problem. Well, people do all kinds of confusing, desperate, disorienting, terrible things because they don't have life inside of them. That's why, that's why you can read the news and listen to the stories of what took place in Orlando last week. Because our introduction to sin was sin came into Adam and Eve's life and immediately disoriented them. Everything that was supposed to make sense no longer made sense. God wasn't to be pursued, he was to be hidden from. The nakedness that would describe their life, it used to be okay, now they're ashamed of it and they don't even know what to do with it and they cover up fig leaves. I'm just wondering how they knew what to cover, you know? They cover their eyes or cover their toes, but they knew what to cover, right? So something just disorienting, confusing when the life of God gets evacuated out of the human soul, life becomes weird to us. 
And listen, not, not just Adam and Eve, right? When you, when you follow the storyline, by the time we get to these guys, they're a, a nation, a little bitty nation amongst a, brother, a, a bunch of other nations. And these other nations around them, void of the presence and life of God in them, they're doing some pretty horrible stuff. They've invented gods. They knew they needed a God. They invented a God. They invented Baal and Asherah and Molech. And the ways in which you pleased these gods or got appealed to them was sacrificing your children to them. They were, they were killing babies in order to get these gods to do in their life what their empty lives told them that they needed. They, were, they would create cult prostitution with the idea that, hey, our crops need to reproduce, so we'll have sex with the prostitutes in the cult that we've created for this idol. And so they corrupted the world of sex, and it became abusive and disgusting. This is the world that man creates when he's void of the life of God. Now today, he just dresses up in nicer clothes and still does the same thing. It's life without God. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, an outstanding book, he says, to contemporary people, the word idolatry conjures up pictures of primitive people bowing down before statues. There was Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, Ares, the god of war, Artemis, the goddess of fertility and wealth. Well, our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its, quote, priesthoods, its totems and rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums. What are the gods of beauty, power, money and achievement, but those same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? We may not physically kneel before the statues of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. Why do we do this stuff? Because void of the life of God, this is how we do life. But what, a, what an amazing thing. God wants to tell this story. When we pull up to this tabernacle and this smoky thing happening over there in the landscape, it is God saying, I want to return to you. And I want to dwell among you. Because you don't have me in your life but I'm going to make a way for me to be there. And all these sacrifices, all this means of forgiving your sin, my gag reflex against sin is going to be directed somewhere else. I've created another place for it so that I may dwell with you. Listen, there's no question that when you and I lose the life of God, we become pretty weird people. You're weird in your own way, but you're weird. <laughs> and there's this, this sense of guilt that's in us that you can never get rid of until you deal with it with God. 
Because we tend to think that guilt is usually about what we did to that person, what we did to our ex-wife, what we did to this person or that business partner. Try and fix that. But do you understand the Bible says there's a guilt between you and God? Right, I'm, my latest, Eric, you can come back up here. Our, my latest bout with the doctor visits, I'd like to keep you guys informed about my medical maladies. I went and got an MRI done because of some back pains that I've been having, but really they weren't back pains, they were hand pains, right? So my hands would go dead in the middle of the night and I'd wake up and no sense of tingling there. So I go in and I, I discover that the problem isn't here. The problem is right in here. Well, some of us, you know, we feel guilty. So we try to deal with our guilt and deal with our guilt and deal with our guilt. The problems between us and God and this nagging sense of wrongness, it plagues our lives. But there's this really great news. God not only had a desire to restore us to himself, but to take our sins, our guilt, and take them off of us and put them on someone else and remove that sense of guilt from us by making someone else guilty for what we did. And then he would turn and take his judgment and no longer direct it toward us. He would direct it in that picture toward these animals. But there was coming a day when Jesus Christ would come to be the Lamb of God, to absorb God's judgment and to take the guilt for whatever it is that you and I have done. See, this, this is the storyline of God. I don't know what all these religions are trying to accomplish in this world. But this story that God tells, he's trying to bring life to the dead and forgiveness to those under judgment. That's what this book is about. If you thought it was about something else, if you, if you thought it was an advice book, you've missed what it's about all along the way. And whether you are an Israelite standing in the wilderness recognizing we need the presence of God and we need to be forgiven, or you are a suburbanite living in New Orleans a few thousand years later, that's not any different. And God's message isn't any different either. It's the same message that's been throughout the scriptures. So let's do this this morning. What does this mean for you? What do you do with this personally? How does this affect you? How does it become part of your life? Well, at some point, at some point in your life, you're going to stand at a line and get introduced to the thought of, have, have you been trying to make yourself right with God? Because all of us have this sense of estrangement from God. We feel distant from him. You're trying to fix that by what you do, by your being a good person, being a religious person, going to church enough? Or do you recognize that you need God to give you life? He wants to give you life. But the reason why you don't have life is because of sin. Sin separates us from God. But here's his remedy. He will direct his judgment for your sin to another, to his son. His son will take all of the judgment for your sin. How gracious of God. Please don't for a moment walk away. Well, what kind of a God judges? Listen, I didn't create God. I don't, I don't even get to be offended by the fact that he judges people. 
I mean, come on, really? You're going to be offended by that? I mean, that's like the ant being offended by the shoe that's about to smash them. Be offended all you want. At the end of the story, you're smashed. Well, I don't know if I like a God who judges. Listen, I, I don't get to make him up, and I don't get to change him if I find out something about him I'm not comfortable with, but I need to deal with him. And if he is the God who created you, he is a certain way. And, and you know, I'm not going to apologize for the fact that he gags over my sin. And his response is to judge it. But I'm going to be amazed that he's willing to take that gag response of judgment and transfer it from me to his son. That blows me away. And that answers my question. Is God a good God? Well, he's a God who brings judgment. Yeah, and he doesn't mind visiting it on his own son and sparing you and me. Is God a good God? Yes. This morning, if, if you haven't looked to Christ that way, if you're trying to be a good person rather than realizing I need someone else to take the penalty from my sin and I need that one to give me his life, right? We were born again, Peter said, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can get life from him. You can get life today and, and perhaps that's what you're most in touch with. My life doesn't work. It hurts. It's in pain. I'm freaking out. Well, might that be because you need the life of God? And this morning, you can open your heart to him right now and turn to him in repentance, and he will come bring that life into your life. So let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord, you know every one of our stories. Lord, you know where life isn't working for us. You know where we hurt. You know where we have questions. You know where we feel like we're in over our heads. You know where we've given up and you know where our despair is. You know us. God, today you, you want us to know your story, not just our own story. I want us to lift our eyes from our own world to see what you have done and what you've given us a roadmap. For years and years, you have pointed to a God who would return to us, who would bring life to us, who would solve the problem of judgment by sending his son, placing judgment on him and sparing us not just sparing us, but returning to us. God, thank you for the amazing thought that you want to dwell in our midst. And you're not okay with being separated from us. And you're not okay with us living lives as dead people. God, I pray for every person who's here this morning that they would know that they have transferred their hope and they've put their faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning, you're not certain about that. You, listen, you've heard what God has to say. God says, I will take judgment from you and I'll put it on my son. Well, this morning, you can trust in that. You can hope in that. You can put your faith in that. 
You can receive forgiveness. That guilt can be dealt with. God can transfer the sin that brings that guilt from you to another and remove it from your life. If you look to him in faith, you'll tell him this morning by faith, Lord Jesus, I trust in you to take my judgment. And I'm looking to you now. Would you give me your life? I know I need life. Would you come this morning? Come live in me. Come dwell among me again. Be in my life and give me your purpose. Let me live for your glory. Tell God you want that. It's your faith and it's your prayer that God comes and floods and he comes into your life as you open your heart to him. Do that right now. Tell him. Put your own words to it. Say, God, I want that. I believe that and I trust in that. God, as we go today, we go celebrating Father's Day. Lord, what, what grace, amazing grace fills our hearts to know how eager you have been to be our Father, to break down the walls that separate us, to be in our lives, to come and find us, to bring forgiveness with you and restore life to us. God, as we celebrate Father's Day, Lord, we more than anything celebrate you being our Father through what Jesus did to us. And so God, receive our gratitude today on Father's Day as always. Lord, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. So have a wonderful Father's Day. Well, maybe it's a good one we'll do next week. <laughs>